Good morning. Uh, would you please open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, we are continuing our series through this book which is filled with so much hope and such beautiful promises from the Lord. But this morning, I'm going to talk about an insurmountable problem that we all face, but we cannot solve. It's a problem that puts an end to dreams, ambitions, hopes, and aspirations. It's an obstacle that hinders and comes in the way of every major project and goal for good. I'm not talking about the coronavirus. I'm speaking of a far more dangerous, more infectious virus, a deeper, darker curse that infects us all. This virus, this curse, this problem, it destroys marriages and children and families. It interrupts every effort and endeavor that we make to stand before God. It leaves us dirty and polluted, filthy and guilty and ashamed. You know what I'm talking about. Every single one of us in this room is so familiar with this. This is a universal problem. We know it and we feel it deep within. All of us at some point in our lives or the other, we have felt and we know the sense of our own shame, our own sin, and our guilt, how filthy we are. We try to hide from it. We try to mask it. We try to escape it. We try to suppress it or deny it or pretend it isn't true. But at the end of the day, we must all face the problem of our sin and our guilt. Our sin is an ever-present reality from which there is no escape. Or it seems like there's no escape. And the question is, where does that leave us with God Almighty, our Creator, and our Judge? Does our sin interrupt His plans and purposes and His goals for His creation? Is there perhaps a solution that He can provide? How does God respond to our filthy and shameful condition? Well, in this morning's passage in Zechariah 3, we're going to find out. We're going to see how God responds to our problem. And Zechariah 3 begins in verse 1 by showing us the accuser. Verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Now if you've been following our series through Zechariah and the previous sermons, you might remember that Zechariah, in a time of great discouragement and suffering for the people of God, this prophet Zechariah receives a number of visions. And through these visions, he receives hope and promises in God's word that God is going to rebuild and restore. God is going to restore his people. The city will be rebuilt. The temple, which is God's dwelling place, 
will be re- rebuilt and restored and God will come back to dwell with his people again. They're looking forward to this glorious hope of, of having intimate relationship with God in their presence again. And, and here, after seeing three visions filled with hope, you might remember, now Zechariah lifts his eyes and he's seeing vision number four and immediately he sees somebody familiar. He sees Joshua the high priest. And immediately Zechariah would recognize this man. Right? This is like seeing a, a famous leader whom you would see on CNN or on news or whatever you watch on TV. <laughs> this is an instantly recognizable individual. He is the high priest of Israel. He is the representative of God's people, the one who is their religious leader. He is the one who would intercede for the people before God and act as their mediator. This is the representative and leader of the people of God. And when Zechariah sees Joshua, he's probably thinking, you know, oh my, there it is. Our hopes are being fulfilled. In this vision, I'm seeing the high priest. He's probably going into the temple. He's going to offer sacrifices. That means the temple has been rebuilt and the priest is going to offer sacrifice on behalf of the people. And Zechariah is maybe thinking, oh, hallelujah. But all of a sudden, he realizes that's not the case. We're not with the high priest in the temple. But as he looks more closely in this vision, he realizes he's in a courtroom. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and verse 1 continues, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So the high priest, the religious leader, the representative of God's people, is in a heavenly courtroom before God. And here on the right is this shadowy figure, this prosecutor, this accuser, standing ready to accuse. His name is Satan. And his name means accuser. That's what Satan means. The, the words there in, in the original language in verse 1 uh, you know, the, the verse ends with saying, standing at his right hand, to accuse. That's the same word in the verb. Satan means accuser. And throughout the Bible, we see this enemy of the people of God, this evil figure, Satan, rise up in this favorite work of his to accuse. He loves to deceive God's people into sin. He tempts and lures us into sin. And as soon as we fail and fall, he turns around and points the finger in accusation. Just as a side note here, to both Christian and non-Christian friends, be very careful of being an accuser. Sometimes we get into this habit of thinking we can see people's motives behind their actions, of pointing, being ready to point the finger and accuse Beware of joining forces with this chief accuser. So here stands Satan, ready to accuse in the courtroom, ready to point out where Joshua has failed, where God's people have failed and fall short, where you and I have failed. We stand accused. It's quite a helpless and pathetic situation. Joshua is there, probably head bowed, Helpless before the accuser. And that's you and me. We are an accused people. 
And if you think of the context of the book of Zechariah, right, there's all of this hope that the temple will be rebuilt, that God will dwell with his people, that we'll see the heavenly city. And the question here is, is it possible for an accused people to build the temple? But suddenly there's a response. God responds to Satan, Satan's accusations. The Lord comes as a defender. And he does so by speaking. Verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? The Lord rebukes Satan and shuts his mouth. You think about that response to accusation. You know, sometimes when we're accused, our our tendency is to try and minimize what we've done or to react in self-defense or to downplay the accusation or our involvement in the issue. God doesn't respond like that. The Lord responds by pointing to his own grace. You'll see two reasons here why God defends his people. First, the Lord has chosen his people. The Lord has chosen his people. Notice what the text says. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. God defends his people. He comes to our defense, not because of their goodness, not because of our righteousness, not because of our strength or beauty or anything else, but because of his own sovereign electing love. These are my chosen people. The Lord has chosen these people, Satan. How dare you accuse them? Beloved, when we stand accused by Satan, we would do well to remember this, that God defends us as his chosen ones, those upon whom he has set his sovereign love. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Romans 8, 33. It is God who justifies. The Lord defends us because he has chosen us. The Lord defends, secondly, because he has rescued his people. He asks Satan, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And and the image there is, is of a piece of wood that is smoldering, that is being reduced to ashes in the heat of the flame, and it's been pulled out of the fire just in time. And it's God who makes that initiative. Our rescue from the fire is a work of divine grace. It is God who takes the initiative to rescue us. He has always worked this way. He plucked his people out of the furnace of Egypt. Now when they're in exile, suffering in the fire, God has acted to rescue them from the fire of exile, which they were there for judgment for their own sin. And he is the Lord who plucks his people out of the eternal fire of judgment and hell that we deserve. You know, maybe you've heard of the great evangelist John Wesley in the 18th, uh, 18th century. And there was this incident that's told of Wesley's life when he was a young boy, five years old, uh, you know, in his home. His house caught fire. And, and the parents and the, uh, you know, tried to gather the children and, and flee out of the house to escape this fire. But they came outside and they realized little John, five years old, uh, his nickname was Jackie. Jackie is missing. Where's Jackie? And you can imagine all of the panic that was going through their minds. They started praying. And then thanks to some neighbors who came with a ladder, they were able to pull him out of the first floor window. 
and John Wesley's life was spared. And his mother used this verse from Zechariah chapter 3 to refer to John for many years later. She said, little Jackie, a brand plucked from the fire. And late in his life, when uh, John, it seemed he was sick, it seemed like he was going to die, he said he wanted inscribed on his tombstone, here lies John Wesley, a brand plucked from the fire by divine grace. Brothers and sisters, do you remember how God plucked you from the fire? How he chose you in love? When Satan's accusations rise, remember that the Lord has rebuked him and has loved and chosen you and has rescued you. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And this is who we are as a people. We are a people who are a smoldering brand, a log plucked from the fire. We are a chosen, beloved, fire-plucked people. I want to speak to my non-Christian friends who are here this morning. The only way for you to be rescued from the fire of eternal judgment is divine grace. Is, is God's initiative. You need a divine rescue from the Savior who plucks out and rescues sinners from the fire. So you need to call out to this God to save you. So the Lord rebukes and silences the accuser. These are my chosen people, says the Lord. I have plucked them out of the fire. Who are you to accuse? But there's still a problem that must be resolved. There's still an open issue here that has not been dealt with. Because you see, the fire that God's people are in is God's fire. This is the fire of His judgment for their sin. And the accusations that Satan is ready to make against Joshua, ready to make against the people of God, ready to make against you and me... In this text, in this case here, these are not false accusations. Joshua and us, we are guilty as charged. And that leads us here to the second scene of this courtroom drama. God has silenced the mouth of the accuser, but now we must take a closer look at the accused. Look at verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Filthy garments. Friends, the big problem in this text is not just that Satan stands to accuse us. No, the big problem that we have is the fact that his accusations are accurate. That we are guilty. You know, as we've been reading the prophet Zechariah, I've told you that the prophets, uh, a helpful tool to understand the prophets is to think of it in terms of Dolby surround sound, like my beloved Old Testament professor used to teach. Uh, Dolby surround sound, you know, the left speaker turns on and you hear the message from one perspective and then the right speaker turns on and you get something that's complementing, slightly different perspective, but the same message and, and you get a fuller understanding of what's being said. Well, here the second speaker of Dolby Surround Sound is getting turned on. The first speaker showed us a log of wood burning in the fire that is snatched out. The second speaker shows us Joshua and us clothed in filthy garments. You know, and if, if, if you could read Hebrew, you'd get an idea 
of just how filthy these garments are. The text is very, very graphic and explicit. And I hope you'll pardon me as I try to bring out for you, clearly it's going to be a little bit of impropriety here as I try to show you what the Bible is meaning by this word. This is a very rare word in Hebrew that's being used to say filthy. It's used, the root word in Hebrew is used just a few other times in the Bible, in the Old Testament. One of those times it is used to refer to human feces, to human excrement, to our dung. The other time that this word is used in the Bible, it is used to refer to the vomit of a drunkard. The vomit of a drunkard. That's absolutely disgusting. And the other time that this word is used in the Old Testament, it is used to refer to the waste from a woman's monthly cycle. Joshua and us stand before God absolutely filthy and stinking. I just want you to, I want to engage your imagination for a little while. Just imagine, you know, you're coming to church on a Friday morning and, you know, because of the COVID-19 restrictions, it's a long line here for check-in and, you know, maybe the line is going out on the street, on the pavement and, you know, you're all lined up there on the pavement uh, waiting to get in. And, uh, you know, as you're waiting in line, all of a sudden, a, one of those white trucks, you know, like from, you see from Madinat Zayed, this truck comes rolling along on the street. And the back of the truck, you know, the open top truck, uh, the back of the truck is filled with this mountain of something black, some kind of a black, muddy looking substance. Uh, you know, there's flies buzzing around it and it looks kind of sticky and wet. And, uh, you know, the truck is just going to pass this pavement here when, you know, all of a sudden another vehicle comes and, and knocks the side of the truck and the truck begins to topple. And all of a sudden, all of this dirt from the back of the uh, truck rolls off and lands on you. Lands on everybody standing on that pavement. And covered from top to bottom with this blackness. And flies buzzing around your face and sticky and wet. And then you walk and then you check in and come inside. And then there's this bad, awful smell and you realize this substance is manure from the animal farm in Alain. And then we're all standing here. Children, imagine this. You know, everybody's standing here. Oh, we're going to worship God in our Friday best. Covered from head to toe in dung. That's what we're seeing in this text. The high priest in the courtroom of heaven, standing before God, covered from head to toe in dung, in vomit, in something that's filthy and stinking. And what's even more scandalous and shocking is who is the person here who is filthy? It's Joshua, the high priest. This is the top guy. This is the best, the representative that we can furnish. In Leviticus 16, the high priest was the one who goes into the presence of God on behalf of the people. He's clean from head to toe. This is our best representative. This is the guy going on our behalf before God. And he's filthy and dirty and clothed in manure. Friends, that's the situation we all face. We're all filthy, we're all guilty, we're dirty and stained, we're polluted and ashamed. This is a universal problem affecting every single one of us. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, Truly, dear friend, if Satan wants to accuse us, any page of our history, any hour of any day will furnish him material for his charges. 
Yesterday you were impatient. The day before you were proud. Another day you were lazy and on another angry. Oh, what a den of unclean birds the human heart is. If the old accuser wants reasons for accusation, he may indeed find as many as he wills and continue to accuse for as long as he pleases. For we are all together as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Maybe you think about, you know, yourself at your workplace every day going to work where you fail to be a faithful witness. You might think about things that you've done at work that are exposed, would be exposed as sin or things that you fail to do, ways that you fail to be a faithful employee, your lack at work, guilty. You think about your prayer life, dear Christian. How often our prayers are so self-centered, so me-centered, not according to the will of God, but just for what we want. Or maybe you think about the lack of your prayer life. You ignore God completely as if he's not a reality in your life. Guilty. We think about our marriages and the ways that we sin against our spouses. Every hour of every day, in some way or the other, through thought or word or deed. Guilty. Think about parenting and the ways that we sin against our children, the ways that we get angry and impatient with them, the ways that we fail to love them and teach them. Guilty. Children, you think about your lives. You know this. Kids, you know that you stand guilty. You know that your heart is dirty and sinful. You know the ways that you fail to obey even though you want to. The truth is you really are guilty. We all are in our sin before God. I mean, this pandemic has exposed our guilt and our sin, hasn't it? The ways that we fail to care for others. The ways that we fail to depend and trust in the Lord, but instead grow frustrated with God. You know, we grow worried about being COVID positive, but we don't worry about the fact that we are all the time, every day, sin positive. That this virus has infiltrated and infected every fiber and cell of our being. There is no vaccine and nothing that you can do can cleanse yourself. You know, you, you, you might think, oh, I don't, I'm okay. You know, I, I, I do some good things, right? But I'm not all bad. I, I do a few good things every day. You know, I was kind to that person yesterday. But don't you see, all, all of our good deeds are also with mixed motives. The Lord looks at the heart. Why did you do that good thing? And oftentimes we're doing good out of a desire for recognition, for people to see what we do. We're doing good because we think it will benefit us in some way. No, 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 all our righteous deeds are so-called good deeds, even on our best days, in everything that we do, at the end of the day, dear friends, left to ourselves, we are filthy, filthy, guilty, covered in sin as black as the filth of dung, and stained and as repulsive as the soiled sanitary napkin. Our message to non-Christians is this, isn't it? When we speak to those who don't know Jesus, we need to begin by reminding them and ourselves of the fact that we stand guilty and accused before God, that this is the human predicament. I want to speak to non-Christian friends if you're here. Thank you for joining us. You're very welcome to come to this gathering. And I want you to know from the Bible this morning that though you might think you're a good person and that you've done some good things, the Bible actually shows you that this is your condition. You are filthy, guilty, dirty, bad. This is your condition before God, all of us. 
We're not speaking to you as someone who thinks that we're better than you or, you know, some kind of holier than thou's that fill this room. No, we're all the same. As, as a pastor, as, as someone who cares for these people, I can give you inside knowledge. We're all a mess. We're all failures. From every nation and every ethnicity, this filth covers us all. This is a universal problem. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? And we don't even realize just how serious our problem is yet. Because you see, the, 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 the fact is not just that we're guilty. The bigger problem here is who we are guilty against. Our guilt is before God. Not just some ordinary human judge. So the text wants to show us it's not just that you're guilty. It's not just that you're accused. It's not just that you're filthy. You're accused before God. You're filthy before God. You're guilty before God. And so we have a big problem. As one teacher put it, how can a sinful man like Joshua be acceptable to God? How can anything he does be acceptable or advance God's purposes? And likewise for the community he leads. In particular, how can this community rebuild the temple or Joshua officiate in it? That raises a question for us, doesn't it? How can we ever be acceptable to God? How can we be used of God to build his temple, to advance the gospel or the mission of the church? How can filthy sinners like us ever have any hope for entry into God's heavenly kingdom. That's our problem. But now, Zechariah shows us the solution. And once again, this solution takes place by divine initiative, by divine grace, by a word that God speaks through the angel here, verse 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. We've seen the accuser. We've seen the accused. And now the text shows us a change of clothes, which represents a change of status. Remove the filthy garments, says the angel. And the message from the Lord is, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity. I have taken away your sin from you. And, and you see the repeated terms in these verses here. There's an emphasis on our cleansing, on being pure and clean, and, and God coming to clothe us as his people. Look at what it says. I will clothe you with pure vestments. And Zechariah watching this, he's getting so excited. He, he jumps in and he starts saying, you know, let them put a clean turban on his head. Come on, he's looking great. Put a hat on him. Put a clean turban on him. So they put a clean turban on him and clothe him with garments. Friends, we are filthy and guilty, but the Lord takes out those filthy garments. And He doesn't just take out our filthy garments. He doesn't just wash us clean of our sin and leave us 
you know, naked and ashamed. He clothes us with pure, clean, spotless priestly robes. Here Joshua is clothed with pure vestments, priestly garments. And it's always this way in the Bible. God must act to solve our great problem. God must take the initiative. You might remember back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve where they sinned against God. They rebelled against Him. And then they're naked and ashamed. And they they make these pathetic coverings for themselves from fig leaves. But the Lord comes. The Lord seeks them out. The Lord clothes them. You might think of the prodigal son and the story of the prodigal son. The son who rejected his father, took his inheritance and walked away from home and squandered his his inheritance on wild living until he's reduced to nothing. And then he comes to his senses and he comes back shamefully to his home, to his father, covered in the dirt of the pigsty in which he was living. And what does the father do? He runs out to meet him and he commands that his son would be clothed with a festal robe. Oh, dear friends, isn't this what God has done for us? This is the biblical doctrine of justification. And that's a very important biblical term that you should all know as Christians. Justification refers to a change of status. That God has declared us not guilty. The divine judge has declared you and me not guilty. And has instead declared us to be righteous in the divine court. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as we sang, we can now say, Bold I approach the eternal throne. We can come into God's presence with boldness. We can stand before Him with our head and eyes lifted high. Because of the righteousness in which we are clothed. Oh dear brother and sister, whenever that sense of guilt comes upon you, remember this. That the divine judge has declared you righteous. And that can lead us to great boldness in our prayer life. To come before him boldly. That the Lord has made us spotless and clean. We go out with this boldness to be witnesses to the Lord. Because we stand righteous. And we all need these clothes. We need this change of clothes. We need this change of status. It doesn't matter where you're from. You know, you, you might have cultural garments that look very nice and pretty, but those don't enable us to stand before God. We need these garments that God gives us and a status of righteousness. And by His grace, when you know this God, this God who clothes those who are naked and ashamed and guilty, then you will stand before Him forever. This is what heaven is going to be, that we stand before him forever in bright and white and spotless garments washed clean. Dear non-Christian friend, I want to invite you today to experience this change of status, to put away the filthy garments of sin and let the Lord clothe you with righteousness. If you would come to him. Do you see this solution from God, this change of clothes, this change of status from sinner to saint, this declaration of not guilty, it raises an even greater question, doesn't it? 
How can this be the case? What kind of a courtroom scene is this? Where is the due process? What kind of a judge is this? That, that he looks and sees a sinner there standing guilty as sin, absolutely guilty, and then declares him righteous and clean. Isn't that unjust? Isn't that kind of arbitrary? How can the judge block the case when there is a legitimate case? How can God pardon our filthy sin? How can he excuse our shameful guilt? How does he cleanse us from our polluted rags? How can he give us new clothes and a new status before him? Well, the answer, friends, is in verses 8 and 9. It's by having a new representative. God gives us a new representative, the coming king. We've seen the accuser and the accused. We've seen the change of clothes. Now we see how that change of clothes takes place. It's through the coming king. And the third speaker of the Dolby surround sound is turned on and, and we're in full 3D sound mode now as we get the complete message. Verse 8, You're now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. The uh, preacher Sinclair Ferguson, he says, this text begins with our predicament. The text then shows us a deliverance, and the text ends with significance. Significance. Look at verse 8 again. Hear now, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends, that's the whole company of priests, these are men who are a sign. They are a sign. The, the priests and the high priest, those who represent the people of God imperfectly in the Old Testament, they are a sign. They, they symbolize something. They point to someone else. They point forward to someone greater. They point forward to a greater and a better representative, a representative who is coming. And, and God names this representative. He says, behold, I am bringing my servant the branch. The branch. And you might wonder, what, what does that mean now, the branch? Branch is another word for sprout. Something sprouting out of the ground. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll see that God appointed kings over his people Israel. From the line of a king named David. And, and he promised that they would, the, 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 the king from the line of David would forever reign over the throne of both Israel and eventually the world. But the people of God sinned. And, and the kings from the line of David all sinned and failed. They were poor representatives. And God judged them. So that the tree was cut. The line of David is often represented as a tree in the Bible, in the Old Testament. Now that tree has been cut down. But God is saying, I'm going to bring someone new. From that same root, a, a branch is going to sprout up. There's going to be a new king. There's going to be a new representative. He's going to come as both a king and a priest. And dear friends, when we come to the New Testament, we see that the Lord Jesus Christ 
He is the Lord's servant. He is this branch, this sprout. He is the one who has emerged from the tree that was cut down, the royal line of David. This is our king, our priest, our perfect, spotless representative who deals with the filth of our sin. You know, think about it. We are a smoldering, dead piece of wood snatched from the fire by divine grace. Jesus Christ our Lord is a shoot from the ground bursting with life and power which he works in us. So how does this branch, this king, this priest, this new representative, this new high priest, how does he solve our problem? Well, if you look there at at verse 9, he says, Behold, on the stone I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription. And there's a lot of debate. People wonder, what is this stone? What is the inscription on the stone? I think it's some kind of gem. And what's more important is what's been written on that. And that's the second half of the verse. That the Lord says, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. When speaking to Joshua and removing his filthy garments, the Lord said, Behold, I have removed your iniquity from you. And here the Lord says, I will remove the iniquity of this land, of all the people, in a single day. Dear friends, that day has come and gone. That day was when our Lord Jesus Christ, the great, righteous, perfect representative, the branch, the king, the priest, that day he died on the cross and hung from a cross, pouring out his blood so that the sin of his people would be removed. How does he solve our problem? We're burning in the fire of judgment, but Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God has come. He has entered into this world. He put his hand into the fire to snatch us out. He suffered and died, absorbed the entire flame of God's wrath and judgment that you and I deserve so that we might be free and rescued. How does this king, this high priest, this representative, our Lord Jesus Christ, solve our problem? Jesus is how we got our clothes changed. Our filthy garments, the filthy rags with which we were covered, covered in manure and dung and vomit. Those filthy garments were taken out from us. Well, where did they go? They were placed upon our Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect spotless one. The filth of our sin, your sin, my sin, was placed on him on the cross as he endured God's judgment for sinners. And his perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness, his perfect robes of righteousness were given to us as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says so beautifully, for our sake, he that is God made him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Dear children, Jesus is the one who gives you new clothes. How did this Jesus solve our problem? How how are these priests, uh, you know, the text says in verse 8 that they are a sign. How are they a sign? Well, what did the priests do? Year after year, day after day, they offered sacrifices before God. Sacrifices that were a substitute for sinners so that sin may be forgiven. One day each year, the high priest would go in to the Holy of Holies, to the presence of God, having offered sacrifice on behalf of the people and presenting blood so that God may dwell with his people, so that God may overlook our sin. 
Those sacrifices kept on being offered, but they never really cleansed the hearts of the people. But Jesus has come, a greater and better high priest, offering a better sacrifice, offering up himself as the perfect sacrifice to cleanse us once and for all. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time, a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. Dear brothers and sisters, as far as sin is concerned, Jesus says to you, it is finished and you are clean. Think of the story of the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther in Germany. Uh, you know, he was locked up in a castle uh, to keep his life safe from those who were coming to uh, kill him, actually. And in that castle, Luther you know, he experienced a lot of terror and a lot of doubt. He often doubted, am I, am I really preaching the gospel? Do I have this right from the Bible? And he often had these visions. He had this vision once of Satan coming to him with a long scroll. And on this scroll was a list of all the sins that Luther had committed. And Satan stood there and accused him and read out those sins one after the other. And was driving Luther mad until finally he grabbed the ink bottle which he was using when writing and threw it on the wall. If you go to Wittenberg and this castle, you'll still see that stain on the wall. And Luther said this, It is all true, Satan, and many more sins that I have committed in my life that are known to God alone. But write this at the bottom of your list. Dear brother and sister, write this at the bottom of your list. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. And I want to speak to non-Christian friends here this morning. I want to speak to children here this morning. I want to speak to us all this morning. Would we just turn away from our sin? Would we just put off those filthy garments? Let the Lord take them off from us. And we would flee in repentance and in trust and in faith. The, the way to be cleansed is to have faith in this Savior who cleanses us and clothes us. Come to Jesus. Let him take away your guilt by his death. Let him give you the spotless garments of his righteousness. Repent of your sin and trust in him. Believe in his promise that God will take away your sin and make you righteous. Our text gives us great gospel hope. And I want to close today with a commission and a promise from this passage. A commission and a promise. First, the commission, verses 6 and 7. The angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. There's an if there. where He says, if you walk in my ways. Remember, it's first cleansing and then clothing. And then commission, not the reverse order. God shows us mercy and grace first and then calls for obedience. And two observations here. First, we have a better representative than Joshua who has already kept this commission for us. But now as God's chosen ones who have been rescued, cleansed, and clothed, God says to you, will you walk in my ways? So that's our commission. And it ends with a beautiful note of promise, verse 10. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. 
You're thinking, oh, what kind of a promise is that? Maybe some of the kids are thinking, well, I don't like grapes and I'm not a fan of figs. So what, what is this promise? Well, the vine and the fig tree is used in the Old Testament to display great peace and prosperity and abundance. The grapes are harvested in winter. Figs are harvested in summer. So you have provision and sweetness all year round. Back in the kingdom of Solomon, they had this condition of peace and prosperity where they had, you know, vine and fig tree, each one under his own vine and fig tree. And dear friends, it becomes in the Bible, as people look forward to the coming restoration, it, it, look, it becomes a picture of heaven. That one day, we will finally have this rest and this peace. No more toil, no more accusation, no more longing that you will finally receive the rest and the joy that you've been hoping for as we're raised in Christ in God's heavenly kingdom and we can live now in hope of that day. But it's not just for us to enjoy alone. No, did you see there what it says? Every man shall invite his neighbor to come under his vine and his fig tree. So dear brothers and sisters, let's be those who invite many others to join us to experience this great cleansing and to enjoy the fruit of God's heavenly kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Christ who cleanses us and presents us righteous before you. And we thank you for the hope of the coming kingdom that we receive in our glorious Savior. Help us to live in light of that. In Jesus' name, amen.